this malicious quote messenger is stealing your signal whatsapp telegram and lots of other applications and messages it's a pretty urgent thing that many of you should probably know about brave has added back uh image search, but with their own independent image search, Google is making it easier to remove personal information from their search results and a warning about discarding your old Canon printers for those of you who are discarding your old Canon printers. So welcome to Surveillance Report 145, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. Thank you for keeping yourself more protected out there. I'm Henry from TechLarm. I'm Nathan from The New Oil. And before we get into the news, just again, a friendly reminder that this podcast is completely community supported by people like yourselves. We couldn't do it without individuals. You're all the people who make this podcast happen. And we also have some perks for people who support us on Patreon. So check us out on patreon.com slash surveillance pod. You can join our Q&As that we upload every week. Uh, and you also get exclusive access to things like our uh, VIP exclusive recording which includes more of our personal takes on things and is a longer cut essentially every single week and also you're contributing back to this podcast and keeping us allowing us to do this for free uh, and spread this information to everyone in the world which we're super grateful for if you don't like patreon we're also in libra pay we also support monero as well so we have several options for all of you to individually support this podcast. Let's dive right into the highlight story. So this is definitely a big one. So attackers are stealing Signal and WhatsApp user data with a fake Android chat application. So I'm going to go ahead and quote the article here. They're using this fake Android app named SafeChat. It's not safe. Uh, <laughs> sneak preview. To infect devices with spyware malware that steals call logs, texts, and GPS locations from phones. The Android spyware is suspected to be a variant of Culver LM, uh, Culverum, however you'd want to say that, which steals data from communications apps like Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp, Viber, and even Facebook Messenger. Re researchers say that the Indian APT hacking group Bahamut is behind the campaign with their latest attacks conducted mainly through spear phishing messages on WhatsApp that send the malicious payloads directly to the victim. So that's an important thing to put a pin on. If you're on WhatsApp, even if you don't install the app yourself, someone could message you as a spear phishing message on WhatsApp to get you uh, to download something that would infect you. So just something to keep an eye on. This seems to be mainly targeted towards individuals in South Asia, and it doesn't dwell into the specifics of the social engineering aspects of the attack. Um, it's common for the victims, though, to be persuaded into installing a chat app under the pretext of transitioning the conversation to a more secure platform. I hope this doesn't uh, eat into my selling points of getting people to signal. Uh, the analysis report that SafeChat features a deceiving interface that make it appear as a real chat app and also takes the victim through a seemingly legitimate user registration process that adds credibility and serves as an excellent cover for the spyware. One critical step in the infection is the acquisition of permissions to use the accessibility services, which are subsequently abused to automatically grant the spyware more permissions. The app also requests the user to approve exclusion from Android's battery optimization subsystem, which terminates background processes when the user isn't actively engaging with the app. There's a lot to process here. So first, as always, be careful what you install on your phones. That's just the most basic thing. Uh, be careful and be aware of any kind of phishing attacks trying to get you to install an application of this nature or anything similar to this. Um, also, be very, very careful what you grant accessibility service permissions for on Android. I will say before I hand it over to Nate, this is not something that is necessarily a shortcoming of Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram, Viber, or even Facebook Messenger. None of these apps are inherently doing anything wrong. Again, the main thing they're guaranteeing security for is 
uh, security in transit between you and another person. As for if someone takes your phone and unlocks it, uh, there's not that much protection these messages are designed to provide. Now, Signal and Telegram and some of these apps do provide, you know, like unlock with a pin code or uh, use face ID or use your biometric unlock on Android. Like they offer those features and you have to enable those, but just keep in mind that it's not ever a guarantee. And this isn't a shortcoming on these apps necessarily. It's just a shortcoming on an operating system takeover pretty much. Um, but just your friendly reminder, use disappearing messages when you can on these apps to help prevent this from being a bigger issue than it needs to be. And also lock out these apps with a pin or a biometric sequence. Um, I assume that that could help against this attack. I think you kind of went over this already, but the interesting thing that stuck out to me was usually we see malicious apps masquerading as something else. So it would be like a fake signal app that's designed to trick you into think you're actually using signal. But, you know, this time we're seeing something else that's just asking for elevated privileges to gain access to those other apps. So, yeah, um, you should always be downloading things that you trust from official sources. But in the event that anything goes wrong, you know, people are always asking about like Celebrate and all these different apps. And like I, I said in the Q&A in the past, my goal is just to keep as little data as possible on my device. I go through it pretty often and like, you know, oh, I don't need this picture anymore. I took this picture for one thing at work and we're done with that. Delete, delete, delete. So, you know, I haven't opened this app in six weeks. Delete, things like that. Okay, with that, we'll move into our data breach section. We're gonna start off with, oh my God, move it. It never goes away. Uh, the health data of 1.7 million Oregon residents was accessed by the MoveIt attackers. Um, quoting the article, Performance Health Technology, known as PH Tech, is a company that provides data management services to U.S. healthcare insurers, and they confirmed in a notice this week that they were impacted by the MoveIt mass hacks. PH Tech said that the attackers accessed patients' personal and protected health information, including names, dates of birth, social security numbers, email and postal addresses, member and plan ID numbers. Uh, the attackers also access sensitive health information, including insurance authorizations, diagnosis and procedure codes, and claims information. PH Tech hasn't said how many individuals were affected by the breach of its system. However, a separate notice from the Oregon Health Authority states that an estimated 1.7 million of its members were affected. They are urging members to activate credit monitoring as a precaution. I don't really have much to add there, uh, except, and we're going to see this in some other stories later on, just freeze your credit. If you live in America, it's free, it's easy. Just just freeze your credit, and it's better than credit monitoring. Colorado Department of Higher Education warns of a massive data breach. So Colorado is a state in the U.S. for those outside the U.S., and this uh, Department of Education disclosed the data breach impacting students, past students, and teachers after suffering a ransomware attack in June. The stolen information includes full names, social security numbers, date of births, addresses, proof of addresses, photocopies of government IDs, and for some, police reports or complaints regarding identity theft. They did not share how many people were impacted, but as the scope of the breach ranges from 2004 to 2020, it likely encompasses a large number of individuals. The article has more detailed information, and they're offering two years of credit monitoring for free. After that, good luck. Okay, Mondi Security Lapse exposed flight itineraries and unencrypted credit card numbers. So Mondi is kind of one of those um, like travel rewards points things. The database was exposed to the internet without a password, 
first mistake, allowing anyone to access the sensitive data inside using a web browser just with its IP address. TechCrunch found that the database was also accessible from an easily guessable subdomain of Mondi's subsidiary website. The database, more than 1.7 terabytes in size at the time it was exposed, contained customers' personal information, including names, gender, dates of birth, home address, flight information, and passport numbers. Some of the data seen by TechCrunch includes uh, full customer passenger name records, including ticket and booking, booking details. TechCrunch had also seen customers' full credit card numbers and expiry dates in the database, and none of the data was encrypted. TechCrunch verified that the exposed data matches real people's information. One person they spoke to confirmed their flight information was accurate and said they had booked their flights through a popular booking website, which I believe TechCrunch did not name. When reached by email, a Mondi spokesperson did not acknowledge the incident or provide comment, but the database became inaccessible a short time after that. It is not yet known if anyone other than the researcher found the exposed database during the window is accessible from the internet. Mondi was asked if the company had the technical abilities, such as logs, to determine what, if any, data was accessed or exfiltrated from the database, but they did not say if it plans to notify affected customers of this data exposure. U.S. government contractor Serco discloses a data breach after MoveIt attacks. This affected over 10,000 people, disclosed via main office at the Attorney General. Okay, the personal information compromising the attack includes any combination of name, U.S. social security number, date of birth, home mailing address, Serco and or personal email address, and selected health benefits for the year. The client roster includes a long list of U.S. federal agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, Justice and State, as well as U.S. intelligence agencies and multiple U.S. armed forces branches, including the Navy, Army, Marine Corps, and Air Force. So uh, not fun, and we're still seeing the result of Move It. Okay, and our last data breach is... um not entirely a data breach, retail chain Hot Topic discloses a wave of credential stuffing attacks. Uh, The company says that the investigation determined that Hot Topic was not the source of the credentials, but it could also not find the source. The information that may have been exposed included full name, email address, order history, phone number, date of birth, shipping address, last four of saved payment cards. The company has clarified that the malicious access, access or exfiltration of the above information has not yet been verified, but it is notifying potentially breached account holders out of an abundance of caution. So good on them for that. Um, they are also sending emails to impacted customers containing instructions on resetting account passwords and advising them to pick a strong, unique password. Yeah, it's a little unclear where these credentials may have come from. I mean, they could have come from anywhere. You know, lots of people shop at a place like Hot Topic. So, um, credential stuffing, don't reuse passwords, guys. Uh, whatever your, whether it's KeyPass, Bitwarden, one password, a notebook on your desk, uh, password, what do they call that? Peppering. I don't care what you do. Just come up with a strategy where you're not reusing passwords. And now we're going to go into the companies. Google is making it easier to find and remove personal information and explicit images from search. The search giant is going to roll out a new dashboard that will inform users if web results with their contact information is showing up on search. The new dashboard builds on Google's results about you tool that launched last year and makes it easy to request the removal of search results that contain your phone number, home address, or email. With this new dashboard, you can quickly request the removal of your contact information from Google. The article goes on to discuss other changes like blurring adult images by default and easier parental control locations. The implication here is that if you have a Google account, which you have to have to do this, and you supply Google with this information, then they'll be able to automatically find the information. The article also notes that the content itself is not removed, just the indexing. So um, I guess it's kind of debatable to what extent this is going to help you. Uh, Maybe for some people, they just want the information away from Google and away from a majority of eyes, but it won't remove the content altogether. All right, our next story is a quick update to last week. 
Last week, we talked about how Google wants to introduce this uh, web, integ- web Environment Integrity API, and a lot of people are calling it DRM on the web. It's very controversial, but quoting the article here, Google's plans to introduce the Web Environment Integrity API on Chrome has been met with fierce backlash from internet software developers, drawing criticism for limiting user freedom and undermining the core principles of the open web. Employees from Vivaldi, Brave, and Firefox have taken strong opposing stances against Google's proposed standard, and some have gone as, f- as far as to call it DRM for websites. Uh, so this came from Vivaldi, actual Vivaldi. I think this I think this was an official statement. Any new browser would by default not be trusted until they have somehow demonstrated they are trustworthy to the discretion of the attesters. Vivaldi also underlines the vagueness of Google's proposal, which they say leaves a significant margin for potential abuse, like collecting behavioral data from clients. Vivaldi's post further explains that choosing not to implement WEI will be complicated as Google can very easily abuse its dominant position in the advertising market to enforce its adoption by the majority of sites, rendering dissenting browser projects useless. On the other hand, Brave has basically said that we're just not going to include it in Brave. They're kind of going against what Vivaldi, Vivaldi's saying, like, that's not, and I mean, I guess they're right. That's not going to be an option for most people. That's not going to be an option for the small browsers like, uh, like LibreWolf or trying to think of some of the other popular ones. You know, there's a lot of popular ones, Waterfox, that are like one-off individuals or a small team of volunteers making it that don't really have a lot of resources. They can't just say, we're not going to include this. It's going to be incredibly difficult. And uh, the the article said that like employees of Firefox have taken an opposing stance. I cut out a lot of the article because a lot of it is just that people repeating the same thing, you know, which is, this is bad, don't do it. Um, But a lot of them were like employees on their personal accounts. Mozilla as a company has actually not issued any sort of formal statement. It's it's hard to tell. Google kind of has a history of just doing whatever the hell they want because as the article points out, they have like 80% market share and they can kind of just do whatever the hell they want. So we will see how that plays out. And Amazon has rolled out its virtual health clinic nationwide, which is called Amazon Clinic, touting it as a virtual platform for users to connect with health healthcare providers to treat common conditions like sinus infections, acne, and migraines. Users select their condition, choose a provider, then answer a brief questionnaire. Depending on where they live, users can choose to connect with a clinician over video or text message. Amazon does not provide the telemedicine services itself, but instead provides Amazon Clinic as a platform to connect partners with patients. With Tuesday's announcement, users in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. can access Amazon Clinic via video visits. And due to regulatory issues, message-based chat on Amazon Clinic is only available in 34 states. Uh, They do not yet accept insurance, but consumers can use insurance to help pay for medications prescribed through the service. Prescriptions can be filled at any pharmacy, including Amazon's own online pharmacy, which handles fulfillment and delivery. The company declined to discuss how many users have signed up to use Amazon Clinic. Okay, our next story comes from Britain, where healthcare body has been uh, chastised for WhatsApp chat sharing patient data. Staff at the NHS Lanarkshire... I definitely pronounced that wrong, I'm sorry, which serves over half a million Scottish residents used WhatsApp to swap photos and personal info about patients, including children's name and addresses. Following a probe, the UK Information Commission, uh, UK Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO, said, in a group, said a group chat created in March 2020, just as the UK government issued the first COVID lockdown, was in breach of Article 58 of the GDPR, uh, the UK GDPR. It did not recommend a fine, but rather an overhaul of the healthcare group's data protection practices. 
They said the information was shared between 26 staff for more than two years from April 1st, 2020 to April 25th, 2022, over hundreds of entries within the WhatsApp group chat that included adult and child's patient names, plus hundreds of patients' phone numbers, many dates of birth, and at least 28 home addresses, 15 images, three videos, and four screenshots. Some of this info included clinical information and therefore was special category data in breach of Article 9 of the UK GDPR. So basically just lots of um, personal information. The ICO noted that since WhatsApp stated it was an encrypted platform, staff thought that it would be secure. Up next, Reddit has beat the film industry and they won't have to identify users who admitted to torrenting. Film companies lost another attempt to force Reddit to identify anonymous users who discussed piracy. The federal court on Saturday agreed with Reddit's argument that the film company's demands violate the First Amendment. The companies wanted IP addresses, logs, name, email addresses, and other account registration information. The users were talking about torrenting, uh, and one person said, I have torrented like a MF-er over ISP and never seen anything. Um, so perhaps they were, but also, uh, Reddit or the film industry has to find a different way to try to catch people rather than just trying to de-anonymize users via Reddit. Okay. And this last one came in just this morning. This was a fun one. Spyware maker, let me spy shuts down after hacker deletes server data. So we covered this story a couple weeks ago. There was a researcher who found their database online, downloaded it, um, shared the findings. And, uh, I may have forgotten this part or maybe they didn't say it just nuked their database when he was done. Like he downloaded everything and then said, screw you guys and deleted it. Um, so let me spy is no longer operational and has said that it will shut down after a June data breach wiped out its servers, including its huge trove of data stolen from thousands of victims phones in a notice on the website in both English and Polish. Let me spy confirmed the permanent shutdown of the spyware service and that it would cease operations by the end of August. The notice said that let me spy is blocking users from logging in or signing up with new accounts. A separate notice on the former login page, which no longer functions confirmed earlier reports that the, uh, excuse me, that the researcher who breached the spyware operation also deleted the data on its server. Let Me Spy's apps are no longer functional, according to a network a network traffic analysis by TechCrunch, and the spyware maker's website no longer provides the spyware app for download. So, um, screw them, good riddance, but hilarious. And now we're going to go into research. So the first story, new Collide Plus power side channel attack impacts almost all CPUs. Before we get into it, the researchers warn that the flaw is low risk and will likely not be used in attacks on end users which I kind of wish that was the disclaimer on almost all these research articles, because it's really rare for us to actually cover one of these that every end user should be concerned about. So the main concept of Collide Plus Power is to leak data from measured CPU power consumption values when a data collision between the attacker's data set and data set sent by other applications to overwrite the former happens in CPU cache memory. Uh, again, there's always more details in the article about this. We're just keeping it pretty condensed here. This impacts processors made by Intel, AMD, and those using ARM architectures. However, the researchers have not disclosed specific models, so it's unclear if all modern CPUs are affected. Nonetheless, they assume that nearly all CPUs are affected by this exploit um, because of how CPUs are built. Despite the potentially broad impact, the developers of the attack clearly state that users do not need to worry about this as data leakage rates are relatively low, and the attack requires lengthy physical access to the target device as well as specialized knowledge to carry out. Preventing data collisions in hardware is a highly complex redesign of general-purpose CPUs, which they think is unlikely to happen in the near future due to the number of shared hardware components in a CPU. So the more realistic mitigation, they say, is preventing an attacker from observing the power-related signal, removing physical access. So I like what you said about, I wish they all came with a disclaimer. Um, 
because this one is kind of in a similar boat. It's a little bit different though. So this one says new acoustic attack steals data from keystrokes with 95% accuracy. A team of researchers from British universities have trained a deep learning model that can steal data from keyboard keystrokes recorded using a microphone with an accuracy of 95%. When Zoom was used for training the sound classification algorithm, the prediction accuracy dropped to 93%, which is still dangerously high and a record for that medium. So contrary to other side channel attacks that require special conditions and are subject to data rate and distance limitations, acoustic attacks have become much simpler due to the abundance of microphone bearing devices that can achieve high quality audio captures, like a smartphone, which mine is sitting right next to my computer as we record. This combined with the rapid advancements in machine learning makes sound-based side channel attacks feasible and a lot more dangerous than previously anticipated. So the first step, of course, is to record the keystrokes and that uh, this can be achieved via, via a nearby microphone or the target's phone that might have been affected by malware that has access to the microphone. So as always, the quick caveat, you do have to have an infected device of some sort. Your phone has to be infected, or they point out there could be like a man in the middle in the Zoom meeting who's recording everything, at which point it probably becomes a little easier because then they can actually see your messages when you type them or something. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's not like this is just gonna randomly happen. There has to be some kind of compromise. Uh, for users who are overly worried about acoustic side channel attacks, the paper suggests that they may try altering typing styles, which would probably be very, very hard, or using randomized passwords. I'm not sure how that would help, but uh, copy and paste your passwords, I guess. Other potential defense measures include using software to reproduce keystroke sounds, white noise, or software-based keystroke audio filters. I wonder, they didn't specify, but I wonder if that means like, if I'm just playing music out of my speakers, like would that help? Because I do that a lot. Uh, remember the attack model proved highly effective even against a very silent keyboard. So adding sound dampeners on mechanical keyboards or switching to membrane based keyboards is unlikely to help. Ultimately employing biometric authentication where feasible and utilizing password managers to circumvent the need to input sensitive information manually also serve as mitigating factors. So what I was gonna point out here is I, I, I definitely agree with what Henry said earlier about a lot of these, these um, vulnerabilities that we discussed in the research section are very complicated. And I think most of them serve more as a proof of concept than anything. I think the concerning part for some of them is the way that they could become cheaper and easier. Like we talked about this a couple of weeks ago also with one of Bruce Schneier's articles where he talked about how the police were able to use digital data to find a serial killer. And he's like, sure, right now, they're only gonna do that with like serious cases because of how intensive it is. But what happens when they can just take all this mass surveillance, dump it into some AI and it spits things back out? And that's basically what they're saying here is, you know, like maybe 10, 15 years ago, this would have been a very difficult attack to pull off. But now we've got AI is very prevalent and readily available. Everybody has a phone next to their computer. Everybody's in Zoom meetings or team meetings 24 seven. And it's just making this attack a lot more feasible. It may not necessarily be something that you have to worry about because again, your device has to be infected. There have to be malicious actors in the room, uh, the virtual room. But at the same time, it's, you know, like I said, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been a big deal. Now it's like, mm, okay, this might be something to have on your radar. If any of you have uh, Canon printers that you're looking to sell, uh, Canon is warning of Wi-Fi security risks when discarding inkjet printers. Pretty much, uh, they're warning that the Wi-Fi connection settings stored in the device's memories are not wiped, as they should during initialization, allowing others to gain access to the data. The specific information stored in a Canon printer varies depending on the model and configuration, but generally this includes the network SSID, the password, network type, assigned IP address, MAC address, and network profile. The list of Canon printers impacted by this issue is too extensive to include, comprising of almost 200 business uh, printers, and so the vendor has published a separate document to help users check if the data retention problem impacts their printer models. 
They suggest owners of impacted printers first wipe their Wi-Fi settings before a third party has access to the printer, such as when you're repairing the device or giving or selling it to another person. The article has detailed instructions on how to reset your printer, which is probably good advice for all printers. So definitely check it out. Okay, and then this last story comes from a researcher. Um, this is kind of one of those proof of concepts I talked about earlier. They, they talk about retrieving your browser history through a CAPTCHA. Um, basically, like I said, they've created a proof of concept where they used a CAPTCHA to detect visited links on the page you're on. And, um, you know, of course, they walk through exactly how they did that and how it worked in the blog post. So if you want more information, go check that out. But basically, if they can detect those links, especially on a page full of links, like say search results or YouTube page or something like that, they can use that to infer other information about you, like maybe the videos that you were watching, the articles you were reading, things of that nature. So um, it's definitely interesting. I don't know how difficult this would be. Uh, again, the author did go into detail on how they did it. It didn't sound particularly hard, but I'm also not sure if this is something that would be like run-of-the-mill browser fingerprinting or if this is something that would be like a targeted attack. I don't know. But um, fortunately, the solution is very simple. The author recommends just disabling visited link highlighting in the browser, which... Um, I don't think I've ever seen that setting, but I'm sure it's not hard to do if you go digging for whatever your browser is. And for most people, it's probably not a big deal. So yeah, if you want to be on the safe side, go ahead and disable that and uh, check out the article. It's a very interesting idea. And now politics. We have kind of a flood of EU stories. So I was going to say, at least we're not America-centric this week. <laughs> Usually it's a bunch yeah, of American stories. Yeah, it's all EU this week. And we're going to start with Meta slash Facebook, who's uh, seeking user consent for targeted ads in the EU. They're making this change, uh, which is to seek user consent for targeted advertising to address a number of evolving regulatory requirements in the region and stems from an order in January by Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. Uh, Meta has added that it would share further information on how the process will work in practice over the coming months following further engagement with regulators. So again... We've said this so many times, laws don't fix everything. They sh shouldn't rely on them to fix everything. But uh, this takes me back to when Apple introduced the whole, like, do you want to be tracked by this app or not? And we saw the research that almost everyone said no. When people have a very clear option to not be tracked and profiled, they generally choose not to because it's very easy and it's presented right in front of them. So I'm excited that the EU is now requiring people like Meta to pretty much clearly tell people, do you want us to target you with advertisements and spy on you? And when people have the option to do that, my guess is they're going to say no. So I'm just excited to see this. Okay, our next story is about TikTok. Uh, TikTok will be fined for breaching children's privacy in the EU. The European Data Protection Board said that it has reached a binding decision uh, on the Chinese video sharing platform over its processing of children's data. The regulator had, quote, adopted a dispute resolution decision, unquote, after TikTok submitted legal objections to an earlier ruling in Ireland. The fine is expected to be issued within the next four weeks. So we'll update you when we hear how much it is. The EU decision follows an investigation opened in 2021 by the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland into TikTok's level of compliance with the EU's GDPR and how it handles the data of children ages 13 to 17. So basically, um, the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland opened an investigation with the EU and said, I think TikTok is not protecting children's data correctly, which is probably not hard to believe. And uh, the Data Protection Board was basically like, yep, you're right, we're going to fine them. Uh, said new measures it had taken to comply with the DSA included making it easier for users to report illegal content, allowing them to turn off personalized recommendations for videos, which we'll talk about a little more in a second, and removing targeted advertising for ages users 13 to 17. And my personal favorite quote from TikTok, 
we will continue to not only meet our regulatory obligations, but also strive to set new standards through innovative solutions. And then this is a separate story, but we're gonna tack it onto this because it's so closely related. The headline says TikTok's algorithm will be optional in Europe. So again, this goes back to what we just talked about. TikTok users in Europe will be able to switch off the personalized algorithm behind its For You and Live feeds as the company makes changes to comply with the EU's Digital Services Act. Uh, the changes relate to DSA rules that require very large online platforms to allow users to opt out of receiving personalized content, which typically relies on tracking and profiling user activity when viewing content recommendations. TikTok is one of 19 companies beholden to the rules, along with other services like YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. TikTok hasn't provided a release date for any of these changes, but it says that it's aiming to meet the required obligations by the DSA's deadline of August 28th. We'll keep you updated as we will definitely hear more about TikTok's shenanigans, undoubtedly. And we'll let you know. Home Office secretly backs facial recognition technology to curb shaft lifting. So Home Office officials have drawn up secret plans to lobby the independent privacy regulator in an attempt to push the rollout of controversial facial recognition technology into high street shops and supermarkets. Uh, this ignores critics who claim the technology breaches human rights and is particularly biased. Okay, Mark Johnson, advocacy manager of the campaign group Big Brother Watch said the Home Office must urgently answer questions about this meeting, which appears to have led officials to lean on the ICO in order to favor a firm that sells it highly invasive facial recognition technology. It remains unclear precisely what contact followed between the Home Office and the privacy regulator, but the UK should seek to emulate the European Artificial Intelligence Act, which would place a ban on the use of facial recognition for surveillance purposes in all public spaces, which is what Johnson said. Mark Johnson, who's the advocacy manager of the campaign group Big Brother Watch. All right, let's go to India. India is resurrecting the data privacy bill following an abrupt pullback last year. All right, another name I get to screw up. Uh, Ashwini... Vaishna, the IT Minister of India, resubmitted an updated data privacy bill in the lower house of the Indian Parliament on Thursday, months after introducing its last draft and the abrupt withdrawal of a previous proposal last year following pushback from tech giants, even as many members protested the new bill, alleging it, violate, alleging it violated the right to privacy. Titled the Digital Personal Data Protection Bill, the Legislative Act seeks to provide substantial decision-making powers to the Prime Minister, uh, who is currently Narendra Modi, who, um, even as an American, I know is a highly controversial and pretty unpopular figure from what I've been hearing. Uh, these powers include the ability to waive certain data fiduciaries, including startups, from compliance if the need arises. They can also permit the handling of children's data, given that the fiduciary can demonstrate adequate protective measures. The government further holds the authority to designate countries to which tr uh, transfer of users' personal data is prohibited. And the legislation provides legal protection for the central government, the Data Protection Board, and its members, including the chairperson, shielding them from legal actions. So they're not being held responsible for any of their decisions. The legislation dictates that the central government is responsible for establishing the Data Protection Board, and the government will also appoint the members and chairperson of the board. So more centralization of that power and who's overseeing it. It allows individuals to bring their uh, data protection issues to the board if they do not receive an adequate response from the data fiduciary within the stipulated period. It's also a requirement under the bill for pub the public to provide only genuine personal information and not to impersonate others. Non-compliance with the duties set out in the bill may result in penalties for individuals with fines reaching up to 10,000 rupees, which is $121. Uh, for a data fiduciary that breaches the penalties, laws could be as severe as $30 million dollars which I don't know how to pronounce that word, 250 crores rupees, a lot of money. 
The companies that collect user data must obtain explicit consent from users per the bill. The request for consent should be communicated in simple language and consumers can also withdraw their consent later. The bill also includes certain legitimate uses as an exemption from the requirement of taking consent. This is an update to the deemed consent provision in the last version of the bill. It also allows platforms to collect user data when it is voluntarily provided, such as when accessing public services. The government may also access personal data from platforms in this provision to provide subsidies or to perform functions required by law. So um, that's kind of what the new bill looks like. Does not sound great. Uh, there's a lot of issues in here. Like again, you know, the government is immune from legal legal accountability. They get to pick who's in charge of enforcing this thing. They get to give people, uh, you know, blank passes. There's loopholes for getting your data and, and not needing consent. Um, you're not allowed to provide anything other than genuine information. Like, yeah, a, a lot of privacy concerns with this thing. So. Um, doesn't sound to me like it's much of an improvement from the previous bill. And we're going to go to Kenya, who has suspended WorldCoin scans over security, privacy, and financial concerns. So this suspends WorldCoin enrollment in the country, citing concerns with the authenticity and legality of its activities in the areas of security, financial services, and data protection. The suspension covers both WorldCoin and any other entity that may be similarly engaging the people of Kenya and will remain in place until the authorities determine the absence of any risk to the general public whatsoever. In a statement, WorldCoin Foundation positioned the suspension as temporary, saying the pause will enable it to come up with a better onboarding process and to engage with Kenyan officials on the concerns they raised, including privacy and data protection. What is not clear is how the suspension order today will impact the fact that there are now a lot of WorldCoin tokens in circulation in Kenya, which are being traded around. It's worth asking why the authorities didn't think of this eventuality or any of the privacy and security implications before allowing WorldCoin to establish operations in the country in the first place. Kenya, along with Chile, Indonesia, France, and Sudan, was one of the first countries to pilot the registration service back in 2021. Regardless, it is now looking at it with clearer eyes, and they're saying that the suspension is critical for public safety and the integrity of the financial transactions. So, yeah, I, I agree. It's interesting how they're kind of going back on this a little bit, but I think it's better to go back on it and make modifications than to just continue uh, sending a blind eye. Okay, with that, we'll move into our free and open source news. We're going to start off with Brave, who has brought back Brave Search, uh, Brave Image Search, but it is now uh, independent, like the rest of their search results. So before, it was a proxy for Bing, and I don't know if their goal was to eventually become fully independent. Um, but either way, uh, a couple months ago, I think, they nuked their image search, which admittedly to me really pissed me off, and I, I remember saying that on the, the podcast, is like, I hope that this is temporary and they're going to bring back, like, they're going to bring it back in some form or another. Um, for the past couple of months, when you click search with image, it asks you, do you want to search with Bing or do you want to search with Google? And then redirects you there. And both of them suck. And I didn't like either of them. Quoting the article, every image and video result in Brave search is now served by Brave. Users no longer need to choose between Bing and Google for an image and video search. Unquote. Uh, the article states that they originally rolled out that whole thing in response to user calls to stop using Bing's API. Uh, Henry notes here in the show notes that this coincided with a hike in Bing's API prices. So, I mean. It, just to give you an idea, May 1st, it was announced in like late February by Microsoft that Bing API would significantly rise, like three times plus oh, more damn. of a cost. Okay, that's fair. And in, in, on May 1st, 
And then a few days before May 1st, I think it was April 27th, uh, Brave was like, oh, by the way, we're, we're not we're not going to have Bing image results anymore, guys. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think you know, that's pretty much why they did it. Could be coincidence, but might not be. So yeah, so they got rid of it entirely. According to Brave's version of events, they quickly got a lot of user feedback that this was not a popular response. So they decided like, hey, we should bring search back, but we're not going to pay for Bing's API or, you know, we're, we're going to stop using it. And they brought it back and now it's fully independent. Um, I'm going to assume that that was the goal in the long run. That said, they still do need to add some features for me personally, like transparent backgrounds. I use that a lot when I'm trying to find like logos and stuff for my videos. Uh, usage licenses are also great when we're trying to make like thumbnails and stuff. So um, right now it's very, very bare bones, but I'm hoping they'll roll out some of those more advanced features that compete with other search engines in the future. The next story is pretty exciting. Uh, coming soon, Fedora for Apple Silicon Macs. So at Flock, they announced Fedora Linux will soon be available on these Macs, developed in close collaboration with the Fedora Asahi S-SIG uh, and the Asahi Linux project. The Fedora Asahi Remix will provide a polished experience for workstation and server use cases on Apple Silicon systems. And the Asahi Linux project has also announced that the new Asahi Linux flagship distribution will be Fedora Asahi Remix. They are using a remix as opposed to delivering this support in Fedora Linux proper because this ecosystem is still very fast moving and they believe a remix will offer the best user experience for the time being. Also, the remix will allow them to integrate hardware support as it becomes available. The first official release of Fedora Asahi Remix is slated to be available by the end of August 2023, so coming soon. But development builds are already available for testing on their website, which you can find in a description. Though they should be considered unsupported and likely to break until the official release. So I'm sure uh, Jonah will be trying them out. So this next story comes from the Washington Post and the headline says, hacking group plans system to encrypt social media and other apps. And they're an actual hacking group that some of the old schoolers in the crowd may have heard of. Quoting the article, once known for distributing hacking tools and shaming software companies into improving their security, a famed group of technology ad activists is now working to develop a system that will allow the creation of messaging and social network apps that won't keep hold of users' personal data. The group, called Cult of the Dead Cow, yep, they're still around, they're still doing stuff, has developed a coding framework that can be used by app developers who are willing to embrace strong encryption and forsake revenue from advertising that is targeted to individuals based on detailed profiles gleaned from the data most apps now routinely collect. Uh, this new protocol is called Valid, and the code can be used by developers to build applications for mobile devices or the web. Those apps will pass fully encrypted content to one another using the Valid protocol. As with file sharing software BitTorrent, which distributes different pieces of the same content simultaneously, the network will get faster as more devices join and share the load, according to the developers. In such decentralized peer-to-peer -peer networks, users download data from one another instead of a central machine. So that's kind of all we know right now. They're planning to do a detailed talk at DEF CON this coming week. So possibly next week, we might have some more data or some more information to share about this, assuming that they have anything particularly interesting, like particularly interesting in the sense of like worth updating you guys. Cause I'm sure they're going to go into the details and the, the finer points. Um, we'll just have to see what it looks like. Cause we try to keep this podcast kind of broad and not get too into the tech details. And next, uh, security proof of Threema's communication protocol. So Threema is a security oriented messenger. If you didn't know that, and three renowned security researchers from the chair of applied cryptography at the University of Erlingen, Nuremberg, have now concluded an in-depth security analysis of IBEX, IBEX, 
uh, which I believe is their communication protocol. They present a formal proof of the protocol security and show that it is crypto cryptographically sound, is how they put it. As a result of this, PFS is now enabled by default in current Threema releases. PFS is perfect forward secrecy, which pretty much continually cycles uh, encryption keys so that if one encryption key is compromised, the other ones aren't also compromised, which is kind of a crazy thing I think that was missing in the first place. This is something that's just kind of a default with messengers like Signal. It's also one of my biggest criticisms with something like Session. Um, it's worth noting that this was only an informal audit of the encryption itself, and there's still a lot of other stuff that could be examined. So this isn't like a full-blown, complete messenger audit. This is just auditing the communication protocol, which is still a really good thing, and this is all a good step in the right direction for Threema. Um, and our last FOSS story is uh, just kind of something that happened in the community. Wanted to let you guys know for those who, because for some reason, y'all Linux people feel super passionately about your text editor of choice. Uh, Bram Mullingar, I probably pronounced that wrong, who is the creator of Vim, has passed away. So for those of you who want to know, uh, according to the post, he was suffering from a medical condition that pro progressed quickly over the last few weeks, and he passed away on August 3rd, 2023. Um, I thought it was actually kind of cool. The family has basically invited people who wish to attend the funeral. Um, they say it will be held in the Netherlands, and it will be in the Dutch language. So if you can't get to the Netherlands or don't understand Dutch, probably don't want to attend, but... Um, if you do want to attend, they said they haven't picked a date yet, but they did say an email address where you can contact them and they'll let you know when they picked a date and location and all that stuff. We're going to go into misfits. A cyber attack has disrupted hospitals and healthcare in several states. So hospitals and clinics in several states on Friday began a time-consuming process of recovering from a cyber attack that disrupted their computer systems, forcing some emergency rooms to shut down and ambulances to be diverted. Many primary care services at facilities run by Prospect Medical Holdings remained closed on Friday as security experts worked to determine the extent of the problem and resolve it. As a result of the attack, elective surgeries, outpatient appointments, blood drives, and other services were suspended. And while the emergency departments reopened late Thursday, many primary care services were closed on Friday, according to the Eastern Connecticut Health Network, which runs many of the Connecticut facilities. Patients were being contacted individually, according to the network's website, and similar disruptions were also reported at other facilities system-wide. This stuff needs to be taken seriously. I still have people in my life who go, I don't care about these things. You're going to care if you need any health care and your health care is down because of a cyber attack. So just remember that these things impact real things as well. It's not always just the data. It's also the uptime of critical infrastructure and other important things that we're dependent on every day. There's cybersecurity all around you. Our last story this week, threat actors abuse Google AMP for evasive phishing attacks. So for those of you who don't know, Google AMP is basically a thing where Google indexes a web page, and then when you click on it, instead of sending you to the actual web page, it sends you to AMP, which is supposed to be faster because they've like preloaded all the images and I don't know, a bunch of crap. I, I'm not a fan. Most privacy people are not because number one, it's Google. Number two, it's basically centralizing the web. Uh, so the AMP URLs trigger, and again, we're condensing a lot of the article here into like two paragraphs. The AMP URLs trigger a redirection to a malicious phishing site, and this additional step also adds an analysis disrupting layer. Data from anti-phishing protection company CoFence shows that a shows that the volume of phishing attacks employing AMP spiked significantly toward mid-July, suggesting that threat actors may be adopting the method. CoFence says that phishing actors who abuse the Google 
Google AMP service that also employ a range of additional techniques that collectively help evade detection and increase their success rate. For example, in many cases observed by the, the company, the threat actors use image-based HTML images instead of traditional text body. This is to confuse text scanners that look for common phishing terms used in the message content. In another example, the attackers use an extra redirection step abusing a Microsoft.com URL to take the victim to an AMP domain and eventually to the actual phishing site. Just be aware of that, always be careful, uh, know what you're clicking on, and if you happen to use Brave, I know Brave specifically has a setting, at least in mobile, and I'm pretty sure it's on desktop, where it can say, like, don't use AMP domains. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, just, just the best thing you can do is just be careful of the various messages and things you get. Okay, and that's the week. And so, again, there was that malicious messenger, quote, messenger, which steals signal and WhatsApp messages, as well as some other messengers. Brave has added an independent image search. Google is making it easier to remove personal information from their search results and a warning about discarding your old Canon printers. Uh, it's been kind of a... It's going to have been a pretty fun week. I think it's been a good week. Um, thank you for listening to the report. It's awesome that you're all taking control of your privacy and security and staying updated on this stuff and keeping yourself and the people around you safe. And if you want to support this podcast, again, uh, we're pretty much completely supported by individuals like yourself who gain value from this podcast. So uh, the way you can support this is on Patreon at patreon.com slash surveillance pod. And you also get to join our Q&A, which will be live later this week. And uh, yeah, you can also support us on LibrePay and you can also directly contribute to Monero. Uh, we're seeing, you know, we see Monero transactions every single week. And so we thank everyone who sends us Monero as well. And the final thing we want to ask you to do is to share the podcast around, make sure you're subscribed, and give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that is an option. All these things help us spread privacy and security to more people to keep the entire world a little bit safer. We'll see you next time on Surveillance Report.